The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. At one point, I thought that maybe vertical farming can solve all the issues in the world, but no, I mean, we have to understand that we have a place in the food system and you know, not chase projects that are too unrealistic because you know, many of these projects end up using more resources and then creating more problems that we want to solve. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 6. Regular listeners, welcome back. New listeners, we always roll out the green carpet. If this is your first time listening, I'm positive you're in the right place. This is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's exciting episode, it was with David Ahmed, the founder and CEO of Hexafarms. It's a startup developing software for controlled environment agriculture systems. And what they do is pretty interesting. They are looking at data and leveraging the potential of AI to identify the optimal growth conditions for crops grown indoors. And in that conversation, David and I talked about not only AI and its impact on vertical farming, but a new term that I learned, normalized difference vegetation index, and also what his experience has been like working with the Techstars team out of Berlin. So uh, positive feedback from this episode, and I think you'll really enjoy it if you haven't had a chance to listen to it. If you're interested in what's happening around the ability to detect anomalies with crops or using AI for improving the yields of your harvest, I think uh, you'll find that episode very interesting. Staying with the trend of science, we have a conversation today that I've been looking forward to for several months. It's with Dr. Christian Toma. He is the co-founder and chief science officer at Calera. And in this conversation, Dr. Toma and I talk about his move from CEO to CSO, the inspiration behind the High Cube, and how Calera is expanding its international footprint through targeted acquisitions. 
He shares his passion for engineering and plant science and what goes into building a world-class team and how he's evolved as a leader as well. Don't forget, if you are enjoying this episode or past episodes, I'm still on the lookout for those reviews. If you are the person I'm talking to, you should probably pause this episode and head on over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. You can do that on your phone. You can do that on your desktop. I would love to read these out on future episodes. It always makes my day when I see those come through. Okay, before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Dr. Christian Toma, here are a few words from the folks that support this show. This episode is brought to you by Indoor AgCon 2023. I'm so happy to have been working with the team last year. Indoor AgCon 2022 was my very first indoor farming conference. So it was really eye-opening for me. So I'll always be grateful to the team there for rolling out the carpet for me. <laughs> and I uh, really had a good time meeting a lot of past guests and excited to join them again this year. Entering its 10th year in a row, it's the largest trade show and conference for vertical farming and CEA, and it's returning to Caesars Forum Conference Center in Las Vegas on February 27th and 28th of 2023. Once again, they'll be co-located with the National Growers Association show as well, which is a really good fit for them. The conference keeps growing, and this year it's doubled in size. The expo floor now has more than 170 booths filled with new product resources and solutions to explore. You'll hear from experts, including CEOs, growers, investors, and others in the field during this full-scale educational conference. As always, you'll be able to connect with peers, grocers, and other potential new business partners at their great networking events. I haven't even gotten to the best part. The team at Indoor AgCon has given listeners of this show 20% off their full access conference pass. All you have to do is use promo code VFP, as in Vertical Farming Podcast, and sign up at indoor.ag. See you there. Regular listeners to the show will know that we are also fans of the work being done by the iGrow News team. The team at iGrow has been kind enough to provide a free month of their paid subscription to the Indoor Vertical Farming newsletter. And those will be available to the first three listeners that send in a review. So ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP, the first three reviews that come in. Once it's sent, send an email to harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com along with your preferred email, and we'll be sure to get that set up for you. So Dr. Christian Toma, founder and chief science officer at Calera, thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Where's home for you? Orlando, Florida. How long have you been there? Well, since 2007. I was a brief break from the great Florida weather when I went to the Silicon Valley in San Jose yeah, for a few years, but then came back to Orlando when we founded this company that we're going to be talking about today. Okay. And where did you go to university? Where did you do your studies? Originally, I'm from Romania. So I studied there and in the Netherlands. Then I came over to the U.S. in 94 for my postdoc at the University of Colorado. Okay. Then after that, I went into the industry. I worked prior to founding Calera. I worked mostly in the semiconductor and biomedical industries, both with uh, large companies like Beckton Dickinson in the Silicon Valley, but also with a few startups. But I was always, especially after 2000, I was looking for opportunities in the emerging green economy. And this opportunity came when the other co-founder of the company, who unfortunately passed away five years ago, landed an engineering project to help redesign the master plan of a green city to turn a city plan into a green city in the style of a master city in Abu Dhabi. And it was a larger team. Our small team worked on some specific aspects of a green city, one of them being local food production. 
And that was 2009, 2010. And this is when we were asked by the project owners to do an analysis of a vertical farm. So we did the unit economics analysis. Back then, the unit economics was not there yet, especially because of the status of the lighting technology. But we saw the LED modules, the LED technology that was advancing really fast. And yeah. we saw that well, maybe in a couple of years, they're going to be there. And this is when we decided to form a company. And that was 2010. After we founded the company, we kept it, you know, working on the concept and started working on technical details. And we really accelerated the development in 2013 when we found our first group of investors. Out of all places, they came from Norway. Uh, okay. <laughs> so that explains why for a while we were a Norwegian owned by a Norwegian holding. And actually we went public first in Norway, the Oslo Exchange, a couple of years ago before moving to NASDAQ recently in, in June of this year. Initially, we started with small installations. Our first focus were on the hospitality industry. So that's when you worked at, when you created the Highcube? Exactly, exactly. So the Highcube is a 2,000 square foot growing facility on the premises of the Orlando World Center Marriott, which is actually the largest hotel under the Marriott flag. Yeah. So it's a 2,000 square foot grow room, which has a glass facade, very visible, high PR and high educational value, high marketing value for the hotel as well. So it's literally pick to plate. So the farm is 20 feet away from their yeah. culinary operations. Cannot get closer than that unless you have a vegetable patch at your home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we opened it officially in April of 2018. Still operating, still providing you know, fresh lettuces and herbs and microgreens to the hotel. That facility really put us on the map. We ended up in 2018 sustainability report for Marriott International. So we had a few other iCube-like project opportunities with some you know high-end hotels around the country. But operating that facility for a year, we realized that it's very difficult to scale up a vertical farming business the way our investors wanted mm -hmm. with small installations like this. So in 2019, we decided to pivot to larger farms, so quote-unquote plant factories. And we opened our first one also in Orlando, built in a standard warehouse. It's a 33,000 square foot farm, out of which 20,000 is the grow room. And we had the first harvest in March of 2020. Um, the initial focus for the farm was food services in the Orlando area, so it was designed for that, with that in mind. Unfortunately, our first harvest coincided with the COVID hitting really hard in this country. So for a while, the food services business went away, Orlando being the largest tourist destination in the U.S., 70, 80 million <laughs> tourists per year. Yeah. The city was hit really hard. I'm especially sure. Business groups, the conventions went away. So we had to pivot really quickly to retail. And we're very fortunate to get Publix, which is the major grocery retailer here in Florida, as a customer pretty quick. So we had to arrange everything you know, on the post harvest side to fit the requirements of the retail packaging line. And now Publix is still our uh, largest customer you know, in the retail space. But that was quite a story to tell the uh, grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> we had our first delivery to Publix on Friday night 
in April uh, 2020, just wow. the Friday night before Easter. Everybody was there you know, from top to bottom of the organization, packing and labeling and yeah. making sure that first shipment goes out. And we had a deadline for Saturday morning at 5 a.m. How big was the shipment? Well, it was a truck of boxes, so that's you know, 26 pallets. Yeah. And we made it at 3 a.m. We're ready. <laughs> <laughs> and at 5 a.m., a few minutes before 5, the truck went out. And in this area, the public distribution center is very close. Uh, yeah. And uh, actually, that's the whole idea with vertical farming. It makes a lot of sense to do it when you can locate your farms very close to your customers. Yeah, of course. And you know, distribution centers for major customers. So then... You know, we started expanding. The next farm was Atlanta, twice the size of Orlando, 75,000 square feet in the outskirts of Atlanta. And that started operating early 2021, followed by Houston, which is larger, 85, 88,000 square feet, because everything is larger in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> Large population areas. Yeah. And then followed by Denver. Houston started operating in September, October. 2021. Then Denver, we had the big opening in April of this year. So our approach was to try to expand as much as possible. So we tried to create a national footprint so we can talk to larger food services and you know, companies and larger grocery chain companies that are looking for that partner that can supply at a national level. And this was in a way, the strategy was indicated with a partnership that we signed with U.S. Foods this year. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so that's I think is the third largest food services company in the U.S. Very innovative, you know, great partnership. They really have a long-term view, and they understand very well the challenges of you know today's challenges with the food distribution systems, especially for fresh produce. And yeah, fantastic partner to have. So that's a fantastic recap of your journey with the company. Thank you for sharing that. I'm curious, just rewinding the clock back a little bit, you know, you got your start in engineering and I'm wondering if that's always been a passion for you. Like, do you remember even going far back to growing up as a child, if this is something that was a passion for you, just this idea of engineering or learning how things work? Definitely. Yes. And I was always on that track, math and physics. My studies are in digital signal processing and image processing and electronics. That's something that, you know, 30 years ago, I have sounded kind of strange. But yeah, future. Today, you know, precision agriculture is all about collecting data, yeah. putting data in context, and that context coming from, you know, plant science. And then, yeah, today you can't think of precision agriculture without machine learning, computer vision, big data, analytics. Yeah. So that background came in, you know, very handy. Also, in a way, I'm following on my father's footsteps. He was an agronomist. In oh, okay. Country, and he used to say, you know, don't be an agronomist. You're <laughs> going to end up spending half of your life in the field, dusty and thirsty, and go be an engineer. Yeah. So <laughs> I became an engineer, and but 30 years later, what do I do? I grow lettuce. You'll probably not recognize now, you know, many of the systems that yeah. <laughs> and the methods that we're using, but Ultimately, you know, the plant science is almost the same. <laughs> Do you remember when, as you were studying and learning about engineering, when you started to become interested also in plant scientists or because of like your family history with agronomy, that this was something that was always in the back of your mind? 
Well, I remember that one of the first projects that I worked on as a young graduate was to analyze satellite images. Okay. To do, you know, automated land use classification. Yeah. Back then, uh, that was, yeah, it kind of dates me. <laughs> Mid-80s, we're using Landsat images. One image, we used to call them scenes. Mm-hmm. So the trade name for that is maybe seven spectral bands. 4,000 pixels by 4,000 pixels, you have to pay $5,000 well. for one image like that, multi-spectral image. In these days, you have you know, drone services that can map your fields at an accuracy, actually at a resolution that is much higher than what you could get with a Landsat image. And that's a service that you, know, you pay monthly and you get the images with the stress spots marked. It's just amazing how imaging and you know has evolved to the point where these services can be offered in a very affordable way to farmers. And then there are working in biomedical imaging. So I had the chance to work at San Jose with a very talented of biophysicists and biochemists looking at you know, classifying cells and doing this at you know very high speed and high accuracies. So that was Quite an interesting experience to see how you can use yeah. algorithms and vi- computer vision to uh, look at biologic you know, processes. So if you think back to, you know, let's say, probably 2010, 11, 12, as you're starting to come up with the idea and you're having conversations with your co-founder, can you put yourself in that mindset? Like, what was the idea? What were you seeing? What was the inspiration? You know, because... Working for in a company is, as you know, now is, is very different than starting your own. And you started out as CEO as well. So I'm wondering what that thought process was like for you in those early days, just as you were thinking about starting Calera. Yeah, I mean, I was always, you know, very interested in healthy food and nutritive values and you know, how to improve you know, the daily you know, nutritional intake, you know, starting with my own family <laughs> and then realizing that there is a real need for that and then talking to head chefs from all these high-end hotels, we realized that there is there's so much desire to you know to improve the quality of the offerings. And many times they're limited by the quality of the produce that they were getting through the regular channels. And so we, we kind of followed the guidance early on, the guidance of uh, these chefs and I have very high regard for uh, talented chefs because I think it's, it's an art that combines both the, the culinary art but also the art of running a business. Yeah. And so we followed their lead actually. So our first installation was actually a very small scale, we call it cube, that was built inside the warehouse where we experimented with uh, growing methods and we also used it as a showcase for chefs. And initially, they were a bit reluctant back then. People still thought that mm, hydroponics, maybe products don't taste as good as field-grown products. But so we just, you know, brought them in and here, taste, you know, this is lettuce, this is basil, this is, you know, please go ahead. And we're just standing there uh, watching them how they were, you know, initially they were a bit reluctant, but then they realized, oh, this is so intense. <laughs> So please, I want to have this cilantro in my kitchens. Were you surprised or was that something that was, because you had, obviously, you knew what you were creating. You knew the difference in the taste and the freshness, but obviously there's nothing like hearing it directly from the chefs who were standing in front of you. I was not surprised because we knew the quality of the product. So we're elated. (laughs) 
and they became our you know, biggest champions. That's the case with the Merit Orlando World Center. The, the initiative was started from the head chef and director of food beverage services who you know took it up the uh, their organization and we ended up building this high cube but always i mean we tried always to go directly to the people who actually can you know discern the quality and then you know get them to use our product where did you look in those early days one of the most important things at that stage is ensuring that you're building the right team right and so you have to have people that you trust, but people that can also do the work and that are just as passionate about this project as you. So, you know, what was that like in those early days to figure out who was going to be the right people to move this idea forward? I found that, you know, in my life that you don't really know somebody unless you work with them yeah. for, at least, for at least, you know, three months. Uh, I would say that two most important hires that we made early on were the two master growers that we hired, super talented both with plant science degrees, uh, young and, you know, energetic. They both went through the hydroponic internship at Disney, okay. Epcot Center. So that's a fantastic program. Every oh, yeah. It's a six-month program, and they get exposed to many hydroponic systems and, okay. you know, to the discipline and rigor of a you know, of commercial farm. I think that, you know, no matter how much technology you use, if you don't have talented growers, the quality suffers. Yeah. This is why we, we like to say we're farmers that use technology rather than technologies that happen to farm. And you can see, you know, we bring in a new hires, new candidates. You kind of see maybe in two weeks, you see who's a talented grower and who actually belongs maybe somewhere else, you know, in the organization. Yeah. But now, I mean, these two gentlemen, they're still with us. And now one of them is a director of R&D for mm. US. And the other one is a director of food safety and actually plant production for all the US farms. So that's a key for any vertical farm. I think that's a key set of skills that you know we have to attract. Yeah. Do you find that nowadays... I see on the website you're up to 360 employees. And so obviously the challenges are different now, but how did you grow or how did you change or what skills did you have to acquire as a leader in those early days? You know, because prior to that, you know, this is you were working as part of a team and for someone. And I'm curious about what your journey has been like personally in terms of your development. Personally, yeah. So leadership is a people business, right? So Yes, it was also a personal journey for me personally from going to being focused on technology, technology management, technology development to, you know, working with people. Learned a lot from them and I hope that they learn from me as well. But yeah, it's a transition. So I would say, you know, being very crisp and focused on your message so you don't put out, you know, confusion out there to the organization is super important. Yeah, so people in our organization, I thought that they need a clear direction, a clear message, and then, you know, reinforce it over and over. Yeah, I think that was one of the best lessons learned for me personally. At one point, when we started building all these large farms, so I don't have a background in the food industry. Mm -hmm. So at one point, when we became, yeah, we turned the corner from a development company to a commercial-oriented company, the whole management team had to be you know, reorganized and we needed to bring in uh, actually a new management that comes from that industry. Because at one point you have to change 
from development towards more of a process oriented company yeah especially in you know consumer packaged goods so this is when we hired first chief operating officer Austin Martin who is now the president for US operations who comes from many years of experience in the food industry at all levels and with all aspects and then we saw this in our farms at one point you have to be focused on processes so you can get that you know reduce the variability of your output get your yields week after week after week the throughput yields to be consistently high it requires technology but it also requires discipline and execution at the farm level so that's one big shift that we had to do you know two years ago when we started expanding with large farms around the country so as you were growing in your career and your leadership you know were there relationships that you nurtured that were important for you or mentors that were helpful for you along the way i got a lot of good advice from some of our early investors who are still with us for example lgt impact investor sustainability oriented investor who has a long term view just a uh, great advice on focusing on the essentials you know trying not to spend too much time in the weeds at, you know at, at this level of leadership to make sure that you know fundamentals are good and the direction is good and you know just selecting you know your challenges and you know addressing the important issues first and keeping an eye on the long term rather than getting you know drowned in the noise yeah so in terms of handling people are great advice from my other co-founder Mr. Christian Avanescu who unfortunately passed away 5 years ago he already always you know had a lot, put a lot of trust in people especially after they proved themselves mm-hmm. you know to be trustworthy yeah in the organization yeah this would be the top of my list very helpful one of the things that made news obviously was the decision to go public on Nasdaq and i'm wondering as a team as you started to think about that decision and the factors that led up to that i'm wondering if you could share a little bit about what was happening leading up to making that decision as a management team well it was in a way a natural step for us because we're in this structure where basically we were a us based company but with a you know under a norwegian holding with all the investor base and you know being listed in norway so it was not a natural structure given where the most of our operations were so it was at one point an, a natural progression we, you know we have to come to move our listing to the US because this is where we belong uh, yeah. you know most of our operations belong here and plus we we needed to extend our uh, investor base as well and we need to be able to talk to investors that are focused on on the US market yeah that was the main reason Yeah. And so as you think about structuring the company and adding the board of directors and other people who can advise you from different industries, how have you found that to be helpful in terms of decision or strategy in terms of thinking about where the company is going to be going for, especially in this environment? You know, it's been competitive so many companies entering this space as well. Well, and we're very fortunate to have some very experienced people on the board. So as we moved to nasdaq we have a board that's structured according to the requirements specific to a us listed company so we have to have you know the governance structure that is required with you know, the governance committee the audit committee and we have to have people that experienced leading those committees and while we had team lob group who was the ceo of red lobster as the chairman and he 
was well known, you know, professionally in the industry. So he was able to open some doors for us and attract other very experienced people to join our board. So it was something that we built over a year in terms of searching the board. Yeah, so these are individuals that have uh, experience for many years with other public boards, you know, helping us tremendously to make sure that our governance approach is sound and yeah, everything is in order to meet the SEC requirements. What's been your perspective as you've seen the industry mature? Because you were obviously early and you had a lot of opportunity to do some early innovation in the space, but it's been, you know, I've been hosting this show for two years and it's been interesting to see how much growth has been happening in just that short period of time. And obviously you've seen just as much, if not more, and I'm wondering what your take is on how the industry is maturing. Well, I mean, I think that there is a lot of money that went into the industry. I think that as an industry, we got to a point where we really have to prove our unit economics. Being a public company, obviously, we have reporting requirements, so we have to disclose a lot of aspects of our performance. As an industry, we really have to prove you know, the potential that we have, not only from the point of improving the food system, but also the economic performance. So this is what I think everybody should focus, including Calera, to perfect our operations, increase our sales performance such that we can prove to our investors and you know, to the rest of the markets that, yes, this is a viable industry from our perspective. It's obviously, we still think it's a viable industry, but we really need to focus on these aspects. How has your day-to-day responsibilities changed because you started in the CEO role and now you're chief science officer? And so what are the things that you're thinking about now in that role that are different and where do you find more of your focus going now? Well, so as a chief science officer, I'm more focused versus you know, previously on uh, longer term projects, working on some projects that have the potential to provide some technological breakthroughs with respect to energy efficiency and the ability to control better the growing process, you know, involving things like novel sensors and robotics and machine learning. I really think that it's very important. Genetics is very important. As you know, last year we acquired a seed development company called Vindara, which is a startup coming out of the technology triangle in North Carolina. Vindara is developing new plant varieties using machine learning. Okay. So they're developing a database that allows the system to accelerate the breeding process for a leafy green variety going down from five to seven years to 12 to 18 months, only through analytics, no genetic engineering. Hmm. So this is done by providing or allowing a more targeted breeding process towards a set of traits that you're targeting for the final product. And this is done through strictly through analytics. So seed is uh, probably one of the most important inputs in the process. So you see other companies are focused on this aspect as well. But we believe that with Vindara, having this capability in-house, it's very important. So we're looking at new varieties bred for yield, but also for nutritive value. You know, good things like antioxidants, for example, yeah. increasing the nutritive content of plants in general. So that's something that I'm very interested in. Then there is also the continuous crop improvement program that requires data collection and analysis and 
know, how do you automate that to improve the speed of you know validation of use and yeah. Are you seeing or noticing the availability of talent for these types of roles? You know, because it seems like you know with what you described with the acquisition of Vendara that there's you know this they obviously had discovered that there was a need for this type of AI driven you know plant breeding and which obviously you found value in as well and and I'm wondering if this is opening up opportunities for just a more interest in this type of science because of the need you know for companies like Calera that you know need people that understand this and are able to take advantage of these technologies definitely I mean bioinformatics is a hot topic and there's some great programs out there college programs so I also happen to sit on the advisory board for the agriculture and biological engineering department at the University of Florida, Gainesville. Okay. So this is where yeah, engineering meets plant science. Yeah. And yeah, they have wonderful programs and research programs and teaching programs oriented towards machine learning, modeling. Yeah, these skills are in high demand. Yeah, you go to any ABE department, agriculture and biological engineering department, you will see a lot of focus on machine learning these days. University of Florida, I think, is investing $200 million in AI across, you know, different colleges and departments. And some of this money is going to the agricultural department. So you can see college graduates coming out who are very qualified. Yeah. And plus, we do indoor agriculture, so they don't need to spend too much time <laughs> in the field, dusty and thirsty. <laughs> like in, yeah, like in the old days. You're also expanding your international footprint. Why was that important for you? Well, there are certain regions that are very attractive for this industry. Middle East, given the climate, yeah, Southeast Asia, you know, huge market, expanding market with its tremendous expansion of the, the middle class there. So last year we acquired this German company called Endeavor, and now it's Calera. So geographical expansion was one of the reasons when we acquired them. They already had a farm operating in Kuwait, okay, and in the middle of a desert, literally, and a farm in construction in Singapore. In Singapore, we're also setting up our global R&D center. We have a very good relationship with the Singaporean government. Actually, that farm was also possible because of a grant. It was a competitive grant uh, process that was awarded to Endeavor. Okay. Yeah, it was something like 3 million Singaporean dollars being awarded towards the building of that farm. So Singapore is becoming known as the Food Valley, Silicon Valley, Food Valley. Yeah. Given their challenges in you know, being a net importer for 90% of their food needs, at the government level, they have a lot of programs to bring some of that supply on the island. So we probably are aware that they're becoming a leader in plant-based and culture-based meat, yeah. which is great for the planet because of the carbon dioxide footprint of fresh meat, which is very high. Yeah. So tremendous technology talent and you know, a lot of programs at the government level that are focused on sustainable food production. So we're very happy that we're there. And the other reason for acquiring Endeavor was diversification of our product portfolio, which our first farms in the U.S. were centered on mostly on whole head production and microgreens. The Endeavor team brought in the capabilities and knowledge of you know, highly automated baby leaf you know, production. Okay. So 
together, we pretty much can cover the entire range of products in a leafy green product portfolio from microgreens to full heads. Yeah, that sounds like it's a very targeted acquisition that made sense and completed, sort of rounded out your portfolio of products you can offer. I like to ask this question just to kind of think about what's on your mind lately. What's a, a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? Well, what's next, right, for vertical farming? Yeah. You see this in, you know, quite a lot in the industry. Some people are trying out you know, crops that maybe don't belong in vertical farms. So that's one of, you know, one of the questions that we're asked a lot also by investors okay you know leafy greens you know how to do that it's you know what's next so some people are looking at fruiting products tomatoes and strawberries strawberries seems to be the holy grail these days so yeah we have you know an internal debate and actually obviously we have our own projects in this area so the question is you know, does it make sense at large scale does it make sense to grow a, a product that is you know energy hungry even more than leafy greens so we'll see i mean a lot is changing based on you know climate and geopolitical you know situations who knows so personally i think that what's next is and actually already you know, having a very clear focus on nutritive value it's not enough to produce you know pounds and pounds you know millions of pounds of product but that product it has to have a nutritive value. Yeah. So I think that there is a lot of room there for vertical farming because we can control all the conditions. And once you add the optimized genetics for our conditions, then you can really think about you know, superfoods and super crops. You know, how do you create you know, an arugula that gives you, let's say, all the vitamin C that you need for one day in just one bowl? Yeah. So that's a good utilization of resources. Yeah, in my opinion. What are some of the projects you're looking to get accomplished over the next five to ten years at, at Calera? Oh, it's a long, uh, <laughs> a long uh, view. Yeah, obviously we have announced our plans to expand in the U.S. We want to cover, you know, all the major regions in the U.S. We already announced uh, Saint Paul and Seattle, and you know, expand in Asia, in the Middle East, which are, you know very important regions for us. I mean, for me personally, again, I'm very interested in how far we can take this, you know, automated control of processes in a vertical farm. How do we not eliminate the expert, but how do we empower the expert with data-driven tools mm -hmm. to help them make decisions? So these are all, you know, very interesting projects that I think will take several years to get them to fruition. Energy efficiency is so important in our industry. Yeah. So yeah, we're very interested in innovations along that line. Yeah, I think a lot of people are interested in, you know, obviously carbon neutrality and you know biodegradable grow media. And I think there's a lot of interesting things happening in the space. Obviously one of the things people talk about a lot is you know, just minimizing waste, right? Unnecessary packaging and, you know, water reuse. I think there's so many interesting things that are happening in the space as well. Yeah, I mean, this, you mentioned the substrate. So these days, probably the most productive substrate is still the one that's peat-based. Yeah. But, you know, peat is not the most sustainable <laughs> input. And actually, in, in Europe, there is a directive to phase out peat-based products by 2030. 
So yeah, obviously we have projects looking at alternatives with some technology partners. That's a very interesting project and program. Yeah, it has to do with improving the footprint of your inputs in the process. So it's very important. Yeah, it sounds like you're not going to be struggling to find things that are going to be keeping you busy. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I wake up every morning very excited about the day ahead. What keeps you motivated? First of all, you know, seeing that consumers love our product. Sometimes I walk around with my Calera shirt and I get stopped uh, <laughs> you know, at the grocery store or, or at the gym and whatnot. It's, oh, Calera, I like your products. Great. That's always a good feeling. So that's a huge satisfaction. I'm really motivated by how good our young growers are. Very passionate. You know, they're really good. I absolutely love them. And they give me a lot of energy. Without them, I don't think we can operate the farms to the level that we want. I'm always interested in people's development over the years. So I'm wondering if there's something you've changed your mind about recently. The thing that changed my mind about... Well, I mean, at one point I thought that maybe vertical farming can solve all the issues in the world, but no, I mean, we have to understand that we have a place in the food system. And I don't want to say humble, but be, you know, not chase projects that are too unrealistic because, you know, many of these projects end up using more resources and creating more problems that we want to solve. But just continuing to innovate and expand our footprint in the food industry, but doing it in a way that it makes sense and it doesn't use more resources than other, you know, than existing approaches, more traditional approaches. I think I changed my mind with regards to the best retirement <laughs> age. Uh, I don't see myself retiring yeah. ever because, you know, it's things are so... Still exciting. Yeah, every day there is new stuff coming out that is very exciting and it's motivated. This podcast is listened to by a lot of like your peers in the space, your colleagues, other CEOs as well. So just wanted to give you the opportunity. Is there a message that you have for your colleagues in the space? First of all, I'd like to commend the initiative that actually was came to fruition and was presented this week at the Vertical Farming Congress in Brussels. The Vertical Farming Manifesto that was signed and adopted by, I think, 23 of our peers, including Calera. That's a great initiative and it's uh, an example that, you know, the industry, you know, can come together. So I think, you know, sometimes we're a bit too competitive against each other, but there is, you know, we can cooperate in some aspects. My message is that we need to focus on the important things and make sure that we make this industry you know, very attractive. I think we're turning the corner from being an industry under development where we get to the point where the industry has to prove its economics and its you know, profitability projections. We know that our product is good. We know that we're growing the product in a way that in many aspects is more sustainable. We are addressing some real issues in the food chain. We need to focus on the economics. Yeah, I think that's a good place to wrap up. I'm really inspired by your story. It's been interesting to see, you know, what the advice your father gave you is, is something you ended up taking. It took the long way and it probably didn't end up as he or you thought, but I think uh, it's exciting <laughs> to see how that played out. It was nice talking to you and thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah, we'll make sure. We, so it's Calera.com for folks to learn more about the company, all the initiatives. I know you guys put out a lot of updates, a lot of press releases on everything that's happening. Make sure we link to that as well. And I want to appreciate 
you again for, for taking the time to share your story. It's really inspiring to, to the listeners of the show to hear the origin stories for folks. So thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Dr. Christian Toma for coming on the show and sharing his story. Always fascinating to see the different ways people are making it into this world of vertical farming, their backgrounds, and how they ended up contributing to this incredibly exciting and growing industry, which is something that I'm always looking forward to every week. Full show notes are available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Summary, timestamps, key takeaways, resources mentioned. And we're also working on getting our YouTube page up shortly as well, as some of these are actually video conversations. So that's going to take a bit of an effort. So keep an eye out for that. Special thanks to our season six title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co and see if a podcast would be helpful for your business or brand. As a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'd be more than happy to read those out on future episodes. Tune in next week for my conversation with yet another fascinating leader from the world of vertical farming. This time it's Nadun Henayaka. He is the CEO of Gaia Australia. We get into some really interesting stuff that they're doing, not only in the world of vertical farming, but some work he's done at the International Space Station as well. Very exciting stuff. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published. <laughs>